0: Your time right now is 6 o'clock and welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm your host Sam Swartz.
1: And I'm your host Rachel Fields. In tonight's news... Folks shared
0: their concerns about F-35s at a series of community listening sessions last week.
1: Madison's oldest bar closed for good on Saturday evening.
0: Metro Transit is ushering in a new age of bus fare collection while Madison celebrates Transit Equity Day.
1: And in the second half, the government's calendar for the coming weeks, a retrospective on Bob Marley, a closer look at hair and braiding culture, and two movie reviews. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison.
0: The two nonpartisan consultants appointed by the Wisconsin Supreme Court to review the legislative maps in the state issued their findings to the court late last week, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The report finds that the two conservative-supported maps before the court rise to the level of partisan gerrymander, while the four liberal-supported maps are fairer and more likely to produce electoral results that reflect the will of Wisconsin voters. The finding makes it unlikely that the Supreme Court will approve the conservative-drawn maps after the court announced in December that it would choose the districting maps if the legislature did not pass new ones. Republican legislators approved new maps in January, but they were vetoed by Governor Evers, paving the way for court-decided maps in the 2024 election cycle.
1: A newly proposed law would provide a savings account for every child born or adopted in the state of Wisconsin, with the funds used to pay for the child's education, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The proposal would deposit $25 into a college savings program when the state learns of a new child, which would be funded by fees from the state's college savings program. In addition, anyone would have the ability to contribute to a child's account. The idea is that the act of opening a savings account significantly increases the chance a child will seek post-secondary education, especially for children from communities that have lower rates of college attendance. The proposal has received bipartisan support and now awaits a public hearing. If approved, the program would be similar to ones provided by several other states.
0: Wisconsin State Senator Melissa Gard from Madison put forth new legislation today that would increase the required safety measurements around retention ponds. In a press, in a press statement, the senator cited two instances where ch- local children drowned as evidence that increased safety measures were needed across the state. One proposal would require that ponds be enclosed by fencing and clearly marked with signage. Another would require that ponds in high-density areas would have safety features like a ledge.
1: Last week, the Dane County Board approved a measure that would have the county oversee crash rescue and fire safety measures at the Dane County Regional Airport, including airport activity from the Air National Guard and the Army National Guard. In a statement, County Board Chair Patrick Miles cited the prospect of PFAS contamination as a reason the county was assuming responsibility for all emergencies at the airport. In past incidents, military activity at the airport may have led to PFAS contamination. At the same meeting, the county board approved a contract with a construction company to begin construction on the new jail. The contract will cost the county more than $160 million.
0: The Dane County Board also approved an ordinance that recognized the second Monday in October as Indigenous People's Day, making it a paid holiday here in the county. Many local and state governments have moved away from celebrating Columbus Day, including the state of Wisconsin back in 2019. Indigenous Peoples Day is meant to celebrate the culture and contributions of Indigenous people, including the Ho-Chunk, Sauk, and Kickapoo nations whose ancestral lands make up Dane County.
1: Local leader Wes Sparkman has announced his intentions to run for the position of Dane County Executive late last week. Sparkman is currently serving as Chairman of the SSM Health Wisconsin's Board of Directors, as well as the Vice Chair of the Board of Directors for the University of Madison Wisconsin School of Sociology according to Madison 365. As part of announcing his candidacy, Sparkman praised the leadership of departing executive Joe Parisi and said that his platform plans on emphasizing evidence-based approaches to poverty, mental health, addiction recovery, and housing. A special election will be held in November to replace Joe Parisi, who announced his retirement last year.
0: The City of Madison announced today that they had updated their Recyclopedia to reflect changes to fees and guidelines for what can be recycled by the City. The Recyclopedia provides guidance for people who use the City's recycling services as to what can be placed in the recycling carts as well as other information on how the City's street division operates. People can pick up a paper copy of the recyclopedia at the library or can request that the city mail them a copy. A copy of the document is also available online at the Street Division's webpage.
1: The City of Madison announced today that it is launching a new program designed to help owners of rental properties in the city finance improvements to their properties. The new program would provide access to loans of up to $200,000 for owners of housing units to update or improve their rental properties. In particular, loan fees will be waived and more attractive terms will be available for owners in targeted neighborhoods where rental properties can be run down or in need of renovation. The city cited the crisis of affordable housing in the city as a reason for the program, saying that funds need to be available to maintain the housing stock in the city so that as many buildings as possible can have decent living conditions.
0: Madison's bird-friendly building ordinance was affirmed today after the Wisconsin Court of Appeals affirmed an opinion that upheld the ordinance, ending a years-long legal challenge from builders and realtors. The ordinance requires building designs that are meant to reduce window collisions which can injure or kill local birds and was unanimously passed by the Common Council in 2020. Previously, the ordinance had been challenged for conflicting with the state's uniform building code, but the law was upheld by the Dane County Circuit Court. The plaintiffs are not seeking review by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, meaning that the legal challenge to the ordinance has functionally ended. Those were the headlines, and now on to today's top stories.
1: The Wisconsin Department of Military Affairs sponsored three community listening sessions last week where they gathered feedback about noise pollution from the F-35s at Truax Field. Attendees expressed their ongoing concerns about noise and were told to be patient and wait for answers. WORT news reporter Sarah Gabler has
2: the story. The Wisconsin Department of Military Affairs is using part of a nearly $800,000 grant from the federal government to hear community concerns about the F-35s. Last week, they kicked off their communications campaign with three listening sessions. On Saturday morning, I joined about 50 other attendees at the third listening session held in a meeting room tucked away in a corner of the Madison College main campus. Attendees sat around tables in groups of 7 to 10 and were asked to write down their concerns about the F-35 fighter jets. Many attendees raised similar questions about the F-35 takeoff times and flight profiles. Folks also asked what would be done to mitigate noise in schools and in residential homes. Here's one community member expressing those concerns to the whole group.
3: When more planes arrive, will this be a bigger problem in the community? Um, Question about physical and structural impacts um, that's rattling windows and rattling internal organs. Um, Have we done or are you doing residential noise studies? And um, all these concerns were expressed before. How can we trust it and will be different. Wow, you
4: guys really done yeah. it, didn't you?
2: I overheard a number of attendees expressing frustration at the listening session format. That's because for many Northside residents, these concerns have been raised before. Opponents of the F-35s in Madison have often pointed to the problems that the fighter planes caused in Burlington, Vermont, when they were stationed there back in 2019 and even a U.S. Air Force environmental impact study on the F-35s in Madison from 2020 found that there would be significant change in the noise environment and the surrounding areas that would disproportionately impact low-income and minority populations as well as children. The facilitator of the listening sessions is a global consulting group called Future IQ. The group's leader, David Burel, says that the situation residents face in Madison is unique.
5: It's, this one is really unique in that you have the, the domestic and the, the military aviation side by side and you have a city that's growing up and around it. The change of course is you now have F-35s rather than F16s, right? And you know people are concerned about the change in the noise profile. So
2: The purpose of this information gathering was presented as an opportunity for the Wisconsin Department of Military Affairs to better communicate with the community in the future about the fighter jets but many attendees felt that the communication about the location and times of the listening sessions was inadequate. Some attendees said they didn't receive notice about the meetings until the day of and that the meeting room was difficult to find. Alder Charles Miaze of Madison's Northside, along with Alder Marsha Rummel, reiterated these points. Some felt the organizers didn't adequately reach out to the marginalized communities most impacted by the noise of the F-35s. Though the facilitators announced that the purpose of the meeting was to gather information from the community, many attendees wanted answers to basic questions. Overwhelmingly, community members wanted better communication about the F-35's flight takeoff and landing times. One attendee even suggested that the Department of Military Affairs create an app that would notify civilians 15 minutes before a flight so that they could close their windows and bring their dogs inside. At the Saturday morning meeting, the commander of operations for the 115th Fighter Wing responded to a few clarifying questions about flight times and flight profiles. He also said that some of the noise comes from planes outside his control.
6: We get a lot of transient aircraft we call that uh, a lot of Navy planes that come through Madison and get gas from Wisconsin Aviation and have nothing to do with us. And one of the dynamics in play there is a lot of Navy bases around the East Coast and a lot of Navy bases around the West Coast. And Madison has become a really popular destination for Navy, naval planes to come through and get gas and keep going."
2: The officer would not give his full name on request. If you want to give feedback, you can go to madisonf35.com. Future meeting times will be posted there, along with community discussion boards. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler.
0: The Silver Dollar Tavern, Madison's oldest bar, closed for good on Saturday evening. The mahogany-topped bar itself will find a home in the new Wisconsin Historical Center, which is set to open in 2027. Hoved Properties, which secured the rights to purchase the building last fall, plans to raise it and make way for the History Center's construction. Reporter Jess Miller was there on Saturday to hear from the crowd of tavern faithfuls and see off the beloved Madison Institution. Just good old fashioned times at the Silver Dollar. It's it's just a fun place where I met a lot of great people. Getting out here with the locals is always a
5: good time. It is, it's just been a really good community bonding experience for me.
3: Three words, atmosphere, social, and fun. Dollar at the Dollar, I love to run, I love to drink, and I'm devastated that this bar is closing. The Silver Dollar Tavern served its first drink at 117 West Mifflin Street over 90 years ago in 1933, shortly after the end of Prohibition. This Saturday, around 2.15 a.m., it served its last. In that time, the tavern, which was typically open from 8 a.m. to 2.30 a.m., attracted patrons from every walk of life in Madison. In the words of one veteran bartender, everyone from the gutter to the governor's office could be found at the dollar, often shoulder to shoulder, friends for a night, drinking and sharing tales.
7: I met a lot of
3: ex-boyfriends here. That is true. (laughs) Your own ex-boyfriends or? (laughs) We go play pool whatever have a night we go out on the street smoke a cigarette and go home and it's just like you wake up and you're like i just like i'm so happy with my life like i i just love the people that i'm with at silver dollar saturday's last call brought together new and old silver dollar loyals from 25-year veterans to folks who were there for the first time just to say they stood in the historic building before it was torn down everyone had a story of how they came to love the dollar uh
0: silver dollar has been one of my favorite places, especially after having met my beautiful girlfriend here.
1: We met almost two years ago, but we've been together for almost a year and a half. Wait, let me give her her seat back.
6: This was my dad's bar when he was here. He went to Edgewood, and this was between 93 and 96. I came here on a date, and I was 20, and...
8: I'm like, we can't go to any bars. And he's like, we're going to the dollar. It'll be fine.
7: And it was fine.
3: I was almost, I was very close to 21. What's your favorite memory from
0: the Silver Dollar? I would say being very intoxicated, playing darts.
9: I'm gonna miss the shuffleboard table because I usually won here.
5: The fondest memory is that we have no memories of what actually transpired here. Back then, uh, you could smoke in here, so there was always kind of a thick haze between what was happening at one end of the bar and the other, so if something debaucherous did go down, who's to say that it did actually happen?
3: On hand for an interview were two members of the Teasdale family who've owned and operated the Silver Dollar since its inception. Derek Teasdale, a grandson of the original owner, donned a vintage Silver Dollar bomber jacket for the occasion.
6: I'm going to miss not being able to come up here. All my thoughts as growing up as a kid were in here. My dad was the son of the original owner. And when he passed, my brother and I ended up with that share, and we sold it to our cousins to keep it in the family. So we were the third generation. People that's got it now are the fourth generation.
3: His nephew, Tim Teasdale, grew up in the bar as well.
4: I was too young to drink, but I, I think the biggest thing I remember and the thing I en- enjoy was everybody came in here was happy. Everybody came in here enjoyed themselves. I'm not going to say it was a bar of love, but, it was, but this is a place where people wanted to really just come and enjoy the day. Different, different, you know, and, and, uh, and it's going to be missed.
3: The celebration continued right up till bar closed despite a dwindling supply of alcohol. By 7 p.m., the bar was completely out of beer, though some enterprising customers friendly with the staff were able to smuggle some in. At 10, the remaining dozen or so bottles of liquor were on display behind the bar. No vodka, no whiskey. At midnight, service was reduced exclusively to $5 mystery drinks, mostly containing schnapps, Kahlua, or Dr. McGillicuddy's menthol mint. So how was it bartending the last night at the Silver Dollar? I was sad. Not, not sad that I, um... Was gonna
8: miss all the interactions with all the people. Just that big pile of money at the end of the night. That's the real. That's where the real sadness is. Oh, that pile of money, dude. No other bar could fuck with the pile of money that you make here. And uh, you don't have to cook. You can. You can tell any person in here to fuck off whenever you want. Uh, you. Uh, you can go outside and smoke whenever you want even if there's an entire bar bar full of people uh it doesn't matter you just do whatever you want here and now it's gone forever i think
3: by 2am the scene recalled an earlier time of smoking indoors though the words last call were never actually uttered it was hard to mistake the climax of the evening
4: (laughs) Whoa, <laughs>
3: For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller.
0: Madison Metro Transit is preparing to roll out a new fare collection system to increase efficiency along the city's east-west bus line. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the details.
9: A federal grant will cover the full cost of the $4 million project and bus fares across the city will remain unchanged. Right now, Madison bus riders can purchase a variety of passes, from a single ride up to 31 days. But city officials are looking for ways to make public transportation more efficient. Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, is one example. The BRT line that's currently under construction runs about 15 miles east to west across the isthmus. The line sticks to busier roads and makes fewer and quicker stops to pick up passengers. Metro Transit officials unveiled a new fare system at a Transportation Commission meeting last Wednesday. Starting later this year, passengers on the city's east-west BRT line will be able to pay using fast fare cards. Using technology from Misabi Limited, a London-based company, Riders on that line will be able to tap their new cards on the bus's fare readers to be installed at every entrance, and it will automatically charge $2 from their accounts. And folks will be able to reload their cards at kiosks installed at every BRT station. Or, if they'd rather not use the card system, they can purchase single ride or one-day passes at the same kiosks. Metro Transit spokesperson Mick Rush says the new fare system is looking to make the east-west line more efficient, and the fast fare cards will be free through 2024.
8: And you can pick one of those up at the Metro Main office or through the mail or at a sales outlet.
9: The account-based system will automatically cap fares, so riders who accumulate enough charges will get the discounts associated with the 10-ride pass or 31-day pass. According to Rush, this fare system is more equitable
8: Our monthly passes are $65. That's a lot to pay all at once. So basically now a rider who pays separately gets the same discount as a rider who pays in advance.
9: With fare readers at every bus entrance, riders will no longer be required to board at the front. Rush says that may make it easier for people to ride the bus without paying. But the TAP system will also allow buses to pick up passengers more quickly.
8: This increased boarding speed is going to offset any issues with lost fare, fare revenue if people don't pay their fare in the back.
9: At first, The non-BRT local lines will continue to accept old fare media and cash, but Rush says they hope to change that soon.
8: So for future plans, at some point we'll be phasing out the old fare media and fare boxes will only collect cash with uh, paper transfers no longer being issued. And that'll be sometime in the future.
9: Some local routes, like F and R on the west side, stop at BRT stations. In those cases, riders will have to use the fast fare cards or purchase tickets at the station's kiosks. For now, Metro Transit officials say a public hearing on the new system isn't necessary because they're not raising bus fare. The tentative plan is to implement the new fare system this coming July, before bus rapid transit launches this fall. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
1: And in other transportation news, bus riders gathered downtown today to advocate for transit equity. WORT's Charlie Biloski has more.
6: Rosa Parks would be 111 years old today, and yesterday was her birthday. Today is Transit Equity Day, a group of Madison bus riders organized at a closed downtown bus stop to call on leaders for transit equity. They say access to affordable, accessible public transit is a matter of civil rights. Susan DeVos is president of the Madison Area Bus Advocates, a local nonprofit that's advocating for changes to Madison's bus system.
7: Being a public agency, transit's main objective should be serving people, not boosting ridership. And I think that where things are, people need to be reminded of what the real meaning of public transit is, because Madison is getting away from that.
6: The group also says they hope to see state and federal legislation passed to increase public funding for transit and accessibility of public transit to people with disabilities. They were also there to thank the bus drivers for their work. DeVos says they're also hoping to see an increase in overall benefits and wages for those who work in transit-related jobs with an option to unionize. Barbara Smith is another advocate. She sits on the board of the Madison Area Bus Advocates. She says they're calling for an expansion on current bus routes budget transparency, and equity for people who are elderly or disabled.
7: We want public transit to be viewed as a public service, not a business, and not to focus primarily on ridership or profit. And we're very concerned that there's access to people of all abilities, not just a focus only on the frequency of service, but access. We want to make sure that the local routes, are preserved and expanded and not only have a focus on the the rapid routes or the BRT service, and we're also calling for transparency in the budgeting of public transportation.
6: Reporting for WORT News, I'm Charlie Bielowski.
0: The time now is 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us tonight.
1: It's Monday night. Do you know where your government is and what it's doing? It's time now for Forward Lookout.
8: It's Monday, and we're talking to Brenda Conkle about what's happening this week in local government. Hi, Brenda.
10: Hey, Dylan. Who are you? (laughs) It's Uh, been
8: been a little while, so that's okay. So what's happening today, uh, we'll start with Dane County. At 5 o'clock, the Health and Human Needs uh, Committee has a subcommittee, their opioid settlement subcommittee meeting. What are they talking about?
10: Sounds like they're getting some presentations and information from several folks so it'll be from the behavioral health resource center the afro descendant men's collective as well as the overdose recovery centers presentation and the national association of counties opioid solutions center so they'll be getting a whole bunch of information um and probably using that to then figure out where they think the, the funding should go
8: okay and also at bidding night personnel and finance committee they begin at 5 30. Mostly awarding contracts and grants and stuff.
10: Yeah, they have a very long agenda, but it's a lot of uh, routine things. A few things that may be a little bit of interest to folks would be they're awarding the contract for the maintenance of the airport security systems. Um, They are also looking at adding some funding for a position in the county board office. Um, And then there's some interesting equipment that they're going to be purchasing that may be of interest to some folks. And then they are also giving more money to the food pantries, authorizing the sale of some land um, to the Wisconsin Department of Transportation. And that's about it. Um, But you may want to just take a look and see if there's anything that might pique your interest.
8: Yeah. The sheriff's office is buying a lot of hazardous device unit stuff.
10: Yes, the words bomb and other things (laughs) appear.
8: All right. Well, let's skip now to um, what about Wednesday at 1130? We have the Area Agency on Aging. Their Nutrition and Wellness Committee is having a hybrid meeting. So um, yeah, anything uh, of note there? We don't see this committee too often.
10: No, it looks like they're going to be looking at their policy for their wait list as well as uh, staff and volunteers eating meals along with the the folks who are participating in the programs, they also are going to be reviewing um, some of the community centers that that do some site, some meals. So Cornerstone Community Center, Ziggy's Barbecue Dining, Esquire Club, Riverview Bar and Grill, as well as some fu- uh, some future dining sites that they may want to take a look at.
8: All right, let's move on to the city of Madison, the plan commission formerly the Planning Commission, they meet at 530. uh, So already in progress. And yeah, just a man, a a slew of projects on their agenda.
10: Yeah, it's a little bit shorter of an agenda than usual. Um, They have projects at uh, 531 West Mifflin, and then they have a bigger project that is called the Midpoint Meadows Plant. And so there's quite a few properties that are involved there. They're also on campus. They're going to be looking at changing the campus institutional plan, um and that's for the college of engineering and then they are looking at endorsing and prior t- prioritizing pedestrian and bicycle connectivity improvements and so there's a a study there that they'll be taking a look at that's not my cat
8: no nope, it's mine <laughs> she's very interested in the planning commission
10: <laughs> apparently <laughs>
8: My cat's also interested, uh, the Street Use Staff Commission, 10 a.m. on Wednesday. So if you wanted to know what's happening uh, in the next couple of months in terms of public gatherings, it's a great place to start.
10: Yeah, there's a couple new ones here. So in on March 2nd, there will be the Mass Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers Assembly in March. That's going to be up at the Capitol. Um, a couple of the Lake Street Bash, which is the end of the year campus party. Uh, they'll also be taking a look at that. Farmer Market Wednesdays over there in Martin Luther King, they'll be approving that. And then there's a Wisconsin Milkman triathlon, triathlon, the Madison Mini Marathon, the Wisconsin Law Enforcement Memorial. There's a something new called Badgers Chalk the Block, where they will be chalking the 800 block of State Street. And then they have the Levy Groundbreaking Celebration, which is by Granger Hall. And then finally the Capitol view farmer's market that's out on the East side by, Oh, the great Dane pub out there.
8: Let's talk now about the homeless services consortium board of directors. They meet at 1 PM on Wednesday.
10: Sure. So they'll be getting a presentation on the draft community plan. So, um, some of us have been working on that for the past, maybe eight months or so. Um, and so there's a draft of a new plan every five years, they do one to, uh, prevent and end homelessness. So, um, we'll see um, how people respond to that. And um, we're still in the process of collecting information, be looking for some announcements about how you could give some of your input coming up as well. And then they're looking at some funding competitions that are coming up for some homeless funding dollars, and then they are gonna be purchasing a Zoom account.
8: So, oh, all right, well, you probably <laughs> needed that. Yes. <laughs> Okay, let's look now at, the, at Thursday at 9 a.m. The Police and Fire Commission um, at the Mass Municipal Building, they're holding an evidentiary hearing in the matter of charges brought by Police Chief Sean Barnes um, against a sergeant. So, man, I, I can't remember the last time I, I saw an evidentiary hearing like this that the police chief brought. Is that what this is?
10: Yeah, I mean, the last one was when Sharon Irwin brought one against Chief Koval. So, you know, I haven't seen the police chief bring one against anybody that I can remember. Um, There may have been one or two that maybe uh, we didn't notice, but it's been quite some time. There's also uh, one scheduled earlier this week as well. So the sergeant is Nicholas Ellis. Um, I did not Google them to find out what it might be about, but um, it is interesting that the Police and Fire Commission We'll be discussing this uh, they also will be going into closed session, so we probably will not know a whole lot about it
8: all right we'll wrap things up brenda with a meeting at 4 30 on thursday of course is the community development authority so they'll be getting an update on major projects anything else of note
10: um they're going to be putting in a certification for their section 8 program they also will be awarding a contract with jf findorf uh, for some more work at village on park for the parking structure and the grocery work, and then they will be getting some reports and updates on some major projects coming up.
8: Brenda Conkle, if you want to see all the meetings and agendas happening this week in Dane County or Madison, then just head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, we really just appreciate you walking us through it this week.
10: No problem.
0: Tomorrow, February 6th, is Bob Marley's birthday, the reggae singer, songwriter, activist, and Rastafarian. But according to feature contributor Harry Richardson, Marley's legacy has been overly commercialized. Harry is looking to set the record straight in this week's edition of The Past Isn't Past. He also invites you to join WORT's 20th Bob Marley birthday party this Thursday at Crystal Corner Bar. All donations will go to local food pantries. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggled brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing
11: strong. Tomorrow, February 6th, is the anniversary of the birth of singer, songwriter, activist, and Rastafarian Bob Marley in 1945. Today, Marley is a symbol of reggae music, peace and love, mellowness, but his image has been heavily commercialized and depoliticized. Author David Thompson in his book Reggae and Caribbean Music says, Bob Marley ranks among the most popular and the most misunderstood figures in modern culture. Gone from the public record is the ghetto kid who dreamed of Che Guevara and the Black Panthers and pinned their posters up in the whalers soul shack record store he believed in freedom and the fighting which it necessitated and dressed the part on an early album sleeve whose heroes were james brown and muhammad ali whose god was Rastafari and whose sacrament was marijuana. Instead, the Bob Marley who surveys his kingdom today is smiling benevolence, a shining sun, a waving palm tree, and a string of hits which tumble out of polite radio like candy from a gumball machine. Of course, it has assured his immortality, but it has also demeaned him beyond recognition. Bob Marley, was worth far more. Robert Nesta Marley was born in Nine Mile, St. Ann Parish, Jamaica. His mother was only 18 when she married a 60-year-old plantation overseer who became Marley's father. His father was largely absent but financially supportive but died when Bob was 10. At age 12, his family moved to a poor neighborhood in Kingston. Marley suffered harassment at school because of his biracial heritage. As a teen, he started a band with friends, Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. In 1963, they joined with other friends and became the Wailers. They were discovered and soon were recording regularly. They released a studio album in 1965, which contained the single One Love, a reworking of a popular song, People Get Ready. The song became popular worldwide and established the group's status. The band made 11 more albums. After signing on with Island Records as Bob Marley and the Wailers, they gained international attention. In 1966, Bob married Rita Anderson, a Cuban-born singer, songwriter, and entrepreneur. In the late 60s, early 70s, Marley, who'd been raised Catholic, converted to Rastafarianism. Rastafari was at once a political, religious, and aesthetic movement. It came out of the poor areas of Jamaica in the 30s. Influenced by Marcus Garvey and the Back to Africa movement, Rastafarians believed in one god, called Jah, and that god resides in each of us. Reggae was a militant form of music in the 60s, closely linked to both Rastafarianism and the black power movement. Reggae was the soundtrack of the new political movement, and more particularly, the People's National Party, PNP, the 1962 election victory over the more conservative Jamaican Labor Party, JLP. The PNP took the reggae song title, Better Day Must Come, by Delroy Wilson, as their campaign slogan. From 1974 to 1980, Jamaica was rife with political violence. Gangs linked to the country's major parties were locked in a paramilitary conflict that killed, injured, and displaced thousands of people. The fighting was exacerbated by the poverty made more extreme by IMF loan repayment demands and the sudden price rises of the 1973 OPEC oil shock. Before the 1976 elections, Marley was invited by the Minister of Culture to perform at a concert that was seen as a PNP event. Just before the concert, a gunman shot Bob and Rita at home, probably a JLP supporter, said Brian Meeks, African Studies scholar from Brown University. Two days later, Bob played at the concert with bullet wounds still in his arms and chest. His son, Ziggy Marley, insists his mother, who had been shot in the head, deserves equal credit. She still showed up for the show, the same as he did. I'm proud of both my dad and mum because there's a teamwork going on between them. Bob wouldn't be Bob without Rita, know what I'm saying? The event was a rallying cry for peace. The band performed for 80,000 people that night. To recover, Bob Marley went to the Bahamas and then to England, but returned for the 1978 Peace Concert. During the concert, Marley dramatically brought the two rival party leaders on stage to join hands. Marley did his part to promote peace. The victims of the violence were largely poor Jamaicans. Marley felt ending the violence would allow social and political change to occur, said Meeks, who was at the concert that night. Sadly, the peace movement failed, and the conservatives took power in 1980. Tragically, Bob Marley died on May 11, 1981, of cancer while on tour in Miami, Florida. He was 36. And that is our story for today. For the past and the past, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: For as long as human beings have had hair on the top of their head, hairstyles have denoted social status, membership in a particular community, or simply a means of personal or cultural expression. Artifacts from the Paleolithic period show that people were braiding their hair 30,000 years ago. In the modern era, hairstyles and braids have had particular significance in African-American communities. On this morning's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke to two local experts in hair and braiding culture. Jeffrey Patterson and Nde Bintasar. We'll share a bit of their conversation now, but you can check out our website to hear the rest.
5: Joining us by phone now is Jeffrey Patterson, the owners of, owner of JP's Hair and a lecturer at Madison College. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you. Also joining us is Nde Bintasar, who owns Binken's African Braids. Welcome, Nde Binta, to the 8 O'Clock Buzz.
7: Yeah, thank you. So,
5: let's talk a little bit about why hairstyle and braiding, in particular, are significant in the African-American community. What, what did they, how did this come about as being a means of cultural expression? Jeffrey, let's start with you.
4: Your hair is important to you, it gives you identity, some resilience, you can be creative and expressive with your hair, and sometimes hair gives you, you know, a feeling of freedom. That's why, you know, I think... Hair is an, an important when it comes to barbering or when it comes to braiding. It gives you an identity.
5: And there's a long tradition of uh, people gathering in barber shops or in hair salons and uh, having an opportunity to talk in community. How important are these these places as sources of community? Nde Benta, tell us about that.
7: Just by experience, I have a um, braiding salon. So this is where we met. This is where we discussed about culture. This is where we discuss about history. This is where we discuss about our life, daily life, the huddles we have. And this is where we boost our confidence as black American or African uh, American or African in general. So I believe it's really important place and people feel happy just by doing their hair, just seeing the um, transitioning of themselves, like they're looking beautiful, they believe in themselves. It boosts their confidence, and it's where they actually kind of talk about life or see someone they can talk to. Because it's really hard. People live like independently somehow, or they have troubles, or they don't have confidence to talk about um, their lives. So this is the place that we meet.
5: Now, there was a long period of time in American history where uh, traditionally African or Black American hair uh, was... Considered déclassé, and people tried to straighten their hair, or tried to make it look mm-hmm. more like uh, Caucasian European hair. Uh, how did that change, and when did when did hair become sort of a political statement,
4: Jeffrey? From what I can remember, in the seventies, that you know the afros came back. It was more of you know the the Black Power, you know, and being able to bring our community, our black community together as one. A lot of the music back then was, it was about culture and bringing music back and bringing the culture together, the, the hair, the afros. That was when you saw a lot of the black community become one. And that was, I mean, it was you saw it in the, the barbershops and the hair. You didn't get close cuts. It was, you know, you want to pick your hair out and you had the, the, the pick that had the fists in it, you know, you stick the, the pick in your hair with the black fist sticking out, showing black power. And that was that was back in the seventies, you know. So those days definitely, you know, has gone and come back and I mean it's been a transition. We've been uh, at a point where the Afro's have come back, you know, and it's more of a, a nappy look now rather than the nice round microphone type of haircut. And,
5: and they Benta, let's talk about braiding in particular. Uh, when, did, when did braiding hair in uh, African-American communities become uh, important again?
7: Looking at the history, you know, it's originated from Africa itself. So this is when people come together in the community. It's kind of like an identification, if I go back to the history of, um, in Africa. And it's kind of indication of person's tribe, age, marital status, wealth, power, and religion. So, but now it's kind of more of a trending style. So people feel like doing certain particular hairstyles make them kind of like boost their confidence in them, look more pretty and kind of um, something, doing something trending. So just to fit in.
5: Jeffrey Patterson and Inde Bintasar will give a guest lecture, The History of Braids, at Madison College on Thursday, February 8th from noon to 1 p.m. To register for the event, go to wolfbackconnectmadisoncollege.edu slash events. Jeffrey Patterson, Inde Bintasar, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz.
1: Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two features. On the small screen, season one of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a fantasy series based on Rick Riordan's books by the same name. And on the big screen, a seasonally appropriate classic, Groundhog Day, about a cynical weatherman played by Bill Murray who relives the same day over and over and over.
8: Turn away while you still can. Believe whatever lie your mom or dad told you about your
10: birth. Try to live a normal life. Because once you know what you are, they'll sense it too. And they'll come for you.
11: That was clip from the Trailer for Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a fun mini-series based on the popular YA series by Rick Riordan. The eight episodes are based on his first book in the series, The Lightning Thief. I remember reading about the first 50 pages of this book when it first came out in 2005 and then losing interest. For me, this is one of the rare instances of the TV series being better than the book. Ryodan once described the 2010 movie adaptation, which I skip, of The Lightning Thief as my life's work going through a meat grinder. This time out, Ryordan was taking no chances. He's a producer and writer of the series out on Disney Plus and Hulu. For the uninitiated, Percy is an updated story of the Olympians, Greek gods, and their children sired with mortals. In the old term, demigods. Or in an updated version, not necessarily complimentary, half-bloods. In the first episode, I accidentally vaporized my pre-algebra teacher. We get a sense of Percy, Walker, Scoble's sense of humor and confusion about his place in the world. Percy is 12 years old and has been expelled from a number of different schools. His loving but exasperated mom, Sally Percy, a great Virginia Cull finally has to give in to the inevitable. She has to tell him about his true father, a Greek god, and get him to safety at a camp with others of his mixed parentage. Percy has a friend who turns out to be a protector, not doing a good job in the first episode. Grover. Grover is a satyr, a creature that has horse-like features, which he hides from mortals. Percy makes it to safety, but loses his mom—or does he? At camp, half-blood Percy learns to fit in and makes new friends after a rough start the kids are divided into houses based on their godparent. unclaimed kids like percy are all clumped together in their own house percy on his way their wonders are allowed is there a greek god of disappointment maybe he's missing a kid percy eventually becomes friends with annabeth leigh jeffries the daughter of athena always three steps ahead of everyone else and the best fighter in the camp annabeth has been waiting a long time for a quest a way to prove herself to her absent parent percy is unexpectedly tasked with the quest to find zeus's stolen lightning bolt and prevent a war of the gods that would wreak havoc on the earth the last war of the gods created world war two Percy picks Grover and Annabeth as his fellow questers, and our story really takes off. A fun series with some fun bit parts and cameos. Among them, Lynn manuel as Ares, and the late Lance Reddick in one of his last roles as Zeus. All in all, a fun series worth watching. Up next is seasonally appropriate movie classic.
5: I have been stabbed, shot, burned, frozen, electrocuted. I'm a god You're a god I'm a god I'm not the god
11: and that was clip from the trailer for the classic comedy Groundhog Day By co-script writer, director, producer Harold Ramis I rewatched watched the 1993 classic with a room full of laughing fans at Cinematheque On, you guessed it, Groundhog Day It was fun to see it again on the big screen Bill Murray as cynical weatherman Phil Connors was perfect in the role. For the unaware, Phil goes out to perform what he hopes will be his last trip to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, for the annual Groundhog Day. Along to make sure things go smoothly are his producer, sweet, upbeat Rita Hanson, Andy McDowell, and wry cameraman Larry Chris Elliot. Things go badly after the shoot, and the crew are snowed in and have to spend the day in Huxitani. But then something truly weird happens. Phil wakes up the next day with the alarm clock playing the same Sunny and Cher song it was playing yesterday. And the same two overly caffeinated guys are talking on the radio about Groundhog Day. Phil gets up saying, great, you dummies are rolling yesterday's tape but then leaves his room and encounters the same enthusiastic guy in the hall from yesterday and so on. To Phil's horror, he's reliving Groundhog Day over and over. Worst of all, no one believes him when he explains what's going on, not even Rita, who just thinks he's trying to hustle her. This is also true. At first, Phil does some of the things we all might do if there were no consequences the next day. He eats every sweet treat in the diner, much to Rita's disgust, He has a giant bender and goes on a crazy drive with with two local barflies. Then he decides what he really wants is to seduce Rita. He keeps failing. Finally despondent, he tries to commit suicide. Nothing matters. He still gets up the next morning, unscathed from the day before, and relives Groundhog Day. Then he hits on the most unbelievable idea of all, which I won't give away in case you haven't seen the film. All in all, a fun classic. Well worth seeing again and again. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters tonight were Sarah Gabler, Jess Miller, and Charlie Belosky. Special thanks to future contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing. Thanks to Nicholas Leet for technical production and Bill Kingsbury for, br- for web production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz.
1: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT and local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.